very easy there. <laughs> All right. We are live and we are waiting on Trump's arrest. Uh, we're going to have some things to say about that or if it's going to happen, who knows? Also, you may have heard a little bit about the potential central bank backed digital currency or the idea of the digital dollar. We're going to be talking about that, the potential that that type of technology might have on us, and the seemingly preemptive actions being taken by conservative politicians like Christine Nome, Ron DeSantis, and Ted Cruz. We're going to be talking about all of this and more on episode 390 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got a full crew. I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing fine. You know, I saw in the news this week that uh, somebody is suing Buffalo Wild Wings because they discovered that the boneless wings are actually just chicken tenders, you know, kids' food. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm keeping a really close eye on that because wings are extremely important to me. And just the idea that somebody could be so dense that they don't realize that boneless chicken wings are don't exist <laughs> and that they are just chicken tenders. Oh, I thought they were suing over the fact that they weren't buffalo. But hey, you know, maybe yeah, there's no buffalo in those things either. So, yeah, hey, hey, don't give me any ideas. <laughs> also joining us, we've got Justin Haskins, director of the Socialism Research Center here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. <clears throat> I'm also following the Buffalo Wild Wings saga very closely, <laughs> and uh, I, <laughs> I've, I've uh, discovered that um, that's the least of our problems because soon we won't be allowed to eat chicken at all. So these are the glory days when we can have fights over whether boneless wings really have bones or not. Soon it'll all be grown in a lab and it won't matter. There won't be any bones. So that's my right. biggest concern. <laughs> that's true. Chris, Chris Talgo, editorial director at it the Heartland Institute. What is your take on the Buffalo Wild Wings story that we are covering in depth on this episode? All right. Well, in in all uh, honesty here, I am a big fan of uh, of uh, non-bone wild wings. So I really oh my like gosh. I, I do. I hate I hate the bones because it's just so hard, so hard to eat around them. And it's like you I feel like you waste so much of the meat. So I'm a big fan of boneless, and I think that Culver's has the best boneless wings on the planet Earth. See, we've got all sides of this covered. We've got the pro bones, <laughs> we've got the anti bones party over here represented. So we cover the we cover the us. big important stories on this podcast. Never let <laughs> that right. be said. Yeah, the idea that you know a, a former sitting president might be uh, arrested over some seemingly frivolous charges uh you know that's secondary we needed to get to the bottom of this 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 lawsuit about buffalo wild <clears throat> but yeah no we, we do have to let's let's not get totally sidetracked here we'll come back to the buffalo wild wing story if we have time at the end of the episode well Danny, just one more update to that so in in other news uh the subway company was sued a couple of years ago because someone had checked in their foot long sandwich it was not actually an entire foot long oh. so this this has legal precedent just, just mm. keep that in mind. I, th I think Good the Supreme point. Court will eventually hear this case. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. Probably. Um, so, so yeah, we, uh, we, were, we were thinking that we were probably going to dedicate a lot more of this episode to the idea of Trump being arrested. Um, but there hasn't really been any news on that yet. So I think we're just going to limit it just to this kind of opening part of the episode. Because... Last week, you know, probably late in last week and then over the weekend and then even into the earlier this week, there was this idea that like Trump is going to be arrested on Tuesday like that. That's what Trump's people said. That's what uh, some people in the media were suggesting was going to be the case. And um, and, you know, it didn't happen. It's now it's Thursday and he has not been arrested. So, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. But um, I I largely ignored this. Uh, I chose to ignore this story uh, up until just like a couple of days ago for two reasons, really. One, I'm kind of sick of Trump being like the end all be all when it comes to conservative them talking about conservatives in the media. 
Like, it's just like, you know, he's obviously not like the front and center. Like, so why are they paying so much attention to him? And then second, I just kind of figured that this wasn't going to happen. Like, you know, it's just another one of these, the sky is falling on Trump stories that I've heard approximately 87 times since he started his run for president in 2015. And so far, you know, he's, uh, he, he's 86 and oh, so I figured that this was just going to be another story where nothing actually happens. So anyways, over the weekend, I had a family member bring up Trump's potential arrest, asking me about it. And at that point, I said, I honestly, you know, haven't been paying attention, but, you know, I'll look into it, I guess. Begrudgedly, I look into it. So I did, and I looked it up. <clears throat> and I very intentionally stayed away from conservative-leaning outlets. I wanted to hear, like, the official narrative, not anything that had some, you know, right-leaning slant to it. Like, I, if I anything, I want a left-leaning slant. Like, I want to know what he is being charged with. So I pull up the first New York Times article that I found on the subject, and it was titled... What we know about potential indictment of Donald Trump. So I want to read a little bit from this article. So the third paragraph says, Elvin L. Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney whose office is bringing the case, is focused on Mr. Trump's involvement in the payment of hush money to a porn star, Stormy Daniels, who said she had an affair with him. Michael D. Cohen, Mr. Trump's fixer at the time, made the payment during the final days of the 2016 presidential campaign. While the facts are dramatic, the case against Mr. Trump could hinge on an untested legal theory, and a conviction is far from assured. So as soon as I read that paragraph, actually both of those paragraphs, I was just like, well, there you go. This is all BS. <laughs> like The facts are dramatic. It's like, dramatic? By what standard? Like 1965? <laughs> this isn't dramatic by today's standards. And then the quote, this case against Mr. Trump could hinge on an untested legal theory. It's like, well, there you go. Like This is, this is all just a bunch of uh, a clown show circus act to try to once again bring down Donald Trump for something. And it's just like when I heard this story, like, oh, he's going to be arrested. I just want to be like, oh, for what? Uh, Russia collusion? Was it Russia collusion? No, 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 it wasn't that. Was it the Ukraine thing? Nope, nope, wasn't that. Oh, okay, so it was inciting a, a, a riot or, or trying to take over the country or whatever? Sedition or something like that? Nope, nope, not that. Oh, was it the porn star thing? Yeah, that's it. Like, okay, like this is, this is being blown out of proportion here. But uh, Jim, before I go any further with kind of my takes on this, uh, what are your thoughts about it? Well, the, the entire thing is completely cooked up. Uh, I was reading a piece. I, I know you don't read as much right-wing journalism as I do, but uh, that's where you actually get actual information that isn't biased, to be honest, uh, because most of what you get from the corrupt corporate media are lies, absolute flat-out lies. So you need to read uh, conservative media to, to actually understand what the hell's going on in this country or around the world. But this was uh, Alvin Bragg, the DA uh, in Manhattan, uh, is bringing is trying to bring charges against Trump in, in a really unique legal theory that he this hush money, which uh, he didn't order Michael Cohen to do. Michael Cohen did it on his own. And he even testified to Michael Cohen, who at the time was an attorney for Donald Trump, that he did it on his own, that Donald Trump did not ask him to do it uh, and that he did it because he didn't want that uh, this allegation. And again, if you believe him or you don't believe him, Donald Trump still denies that uh, anything went on between him and Stormy Daniels. Uh, but, you know, that he did this on his own and that uh, he did this to protect Melania and uh, personal embarrassment to Donald Trump that had nothing to do with his campaign. Uh, and so the this unique legal theory is that um, the DA is just supposing that actually, no, that's all a lie, that this had nothing to do with him personally, that this all had to do with the campaign. And because he didn't report this as a campaign expense or take it out of his campaign fund. Uh, that is a violation uh, that's usually a misdemeanor. We're going to make it a felony and we're going to get an arrest of Donald Trump. This this obsession that the left uh, uh, in this country and the left controls, uh, uh, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in, in Manhattan, was put in place by George Soros. That, that's who funded his campaign. And these the desire of these hard leftists, they just can't let it go. You know, if you ignore Donald Trump, maybe he would go away. You know, he was banned from YouTube, banned from Twitter. He has to put all of his social media out on Truth Social. 
uh, which nobody pays attention to. People go to True Social to bring it over to Twitter and put up uh, images of what he did on True Social. You, he was successfully trying to, you know, Trump was kind of fading into the background. Um, yes, he announced for president. Yes, uh, polls show that he's the number one pick for most Republican voters in the primary. We will see uh, that we haven't even really started yet. But, you know, at base, though, this this is their obsession with getting Trump. You know, they were told uh, every time that they were going to get him and it didn't happen. He kept getting away. Um, it kind of reminds me of this whole um, Time's Up Me Too movement. Um, all that kind of started after Trump. You know, I know Harvey Weinstein is the, is the is the poster child for that. But I think that really got a lot of traction, and especially with this Stormy Daniel stuff and the whole grab him and then you know what uh, tape that was released right before the campaign, uh, right before the election, all of that stuff. And the left kept putting all of these these torpedoes, especially when it comes to allegations of sexual mis uh, impropriety and things like that. They kept putting all these torpedoes in the water. And just like in uh, the movie The Hunt for Red October, those torpedoes kept circling back and hitting them all, hitting themselves <laughs> in the face. Uh, you had uh, so so, you know, time's up, me too and all that stuff. You got Harvey Weinstein. Sure. But that was that was really motivated to get Trump. Right. Because he was he had low character and shouldn't have been president. Uh, and look, he said, grab him in the what, you know, uh, and all of that. I'm not going to say it on a, on a podcast, certainly not on YouTube. But, you know, all these torpedoes kept coming back and getting other people. Matt Lauer, uh, Charlie Rose, uh, Kevin Spacey. I mean, there's a long list of, of people that were at one time very popular and trusted on the left that all this all these attempts to get Trump ended up getting themselves instead. But at base here, we have really the left is so obsessed with getting Trump that they will absolutely abuse the power that they have as a prosecutor. Trump isn't being prosecuted. This is a persecution. And, you know, it's actually one of a kind of or of the kind on how our our justice system in this country is going after parents who show up and are upset about the sexualization of their children at a school board meeting. They get an FBI file put on them. The entire the left. What this really exposes, putting Trump aside, is are the lengths Actually, there are no limits to the abuse of power that the left will do to get their political enemies. That's what this is actually all about. And that is what we should be concerned about, not whether or not we get a picture of Donald Trump in handcuffs being right. frog marched <laughs> into, a, into a jail somewhere. Yeah, you know, I, I, you, you say that I only get lies from the New York Times if I read it, but I'm reading straight from, from the New York Times here and it explains what this case is all about. And it, and it talks about, you know, the, the money that was used for this hush money and that he... Uh, apparently, uh, allegedly said that this wrote this off from his company as like legal expenses. And it says in New York, falsifying business records can amount to a crime, albeit a misdemeanor to mm -hmm. elevate the crime to a felony charge. The prosecutors must show that Mr. Trump's intent to defraud included an intent to commit or conceal a second crime and that the second crime is a violation of election law, like you were saying, and that this this payment was actually an in-kind donation to his campaign or something like this. I'm just I'm like reading this and I actually explained this to a couple of other people that I was talking to. And I'm like, the fact that I have to like use 45 sentences to explain what this charge is it's not like he murdered a guy you know like four words or something like that just shows that this is just like you know politically motivated but chris what do you think uh, i don't want to get bogged down in all the gobbledygook of the legal stuff here because i think it's an open and shut case uh, i want to just you know take what jim was talking about at the end and uh, advance a little bit more um, this to me is a very dark day. If, in, if it does indeed, uh, come to fruition that the indictment goes through, which I think it will, because, uh, as the old saying goes, a grand jury can die to ham sandwich. So it's very likely. <laughs> no, it's true. Sorry. Uh, it's a, it's a 23 person, uh, panel and all they have to have is a majority vote to have the indictment go through. Um, this morning they, uh, did not have the grand jury proceedings, uh, there's a lot of uh, questioning as to why, but I'm, I don't want to get into that. Um, d uh, real quick, I think that the, the, the real story here is the fact that the uh, Justice Department, whether it's the DOJ or the Manhattan DA, has been completely politically weaponized, and they see Donald Trump as a viable threat to re-election in 2024. He's the leading uh, frontrunner for the Republican Party as of right now. And they just want to eliminate him as a potential uh, you know, threat to Biden's uh, reelection. I think it's as simple as that. And and if this does happen, which I think it's going to happen, 
been a very, very dangerous precedent has been set, and uh, I worry about the future. Okay, well, Justin, I want to bring you into this conversation. I want to touch on uh, something that Chris just said there. And Chris, just to update your your you know phrase or whatever, I think it should be updated to a grand jury can indict a Buffalo Wild Wing. Uh, based on the conversation <laughs> we started this off with. A Subway sandwich, Donnie. <laughs> I'm waiting for the rim shot. It's not there. Ah, oh, dang it. All right. Uh, Justin, so Chris mentioned this, and I've heard this from other people, that this is like a way of, of eliminating Donald Trump because he is a threat to you know Joe Biden in the coming election or something like that. Um, I've also heard the opposite, and that this is like being trumped up by Trump's side in a way to make him look like some type of martyr and another witch hunt or something to make him a little bit more palatable for like Republicans who may have kind of lost interest in following him. And I, you know, I could see where Chris is coming from. I think that's like kind of the obvious takeaway, but I could almost make a case for that latter theory as well, because like for me, like I said, I chose to ignore this. You know, everyone that watches the show knows that I was a am still like a, a trump fan in general but, but like I, I i just like kind of wanted him to be out of the picture and then when i saw what was actually happening here i'm just like oh my gosh they're gonna make me vote for this guy again aren't but, they but Donnie, real quick <laughs> and i know justin is going to respond but just real quick just to throw you know a loop into a wrench into that argument so you're telling me that, that donald trump wanted elvin bragg to open up some bogus case against him like of course not all all trump did was he leaked the fact that the indictment was supposed to come down earlier this week, which Elvin uh, Bragg's team told his lawyers because that's part of the court uh, process. So well, I just I, I find a giant hole in that story. Forget so. it, Donnie. You're out of your element. What do you think, Justin? I don't know. This this whole thing is just a giant circus right now, so I'm not really <laughs> sure. Um, so basically... Uh, you know, I thought about that a lot because I can't figure out if you really want to just destroy Donald Trump. I'm not really sure that this does it. If anything, I think it it probably drums up some support for him amongst people in the Republican Party who are kind of got kind of sick of him and all the stuff with DeSantis and him attacking DeSantis and him, you know, just just the sort of tired nature of some of the some of the antics. I think lately there's a lot of Republicans who got tired of that. And um, people who like Trump a lot. I mean, I think they just were getting tired. And then this comes along and you almost can't help but feel like we got to go back into defense mode because it's just so egregious. The charge is just so absolutely egregious. And so you do wonder, is it just that Democrats and liberals and the people in the media who are backing this, they just don't understand that that's how Republicans will react? Or is it that they actually want them to react that way so that Trump does get the nomination because they want him to get the nomination so that he'll lose? Or is it some other kind of crazy theory? And as I'm going through all these things, I thought, you know, in reality, it's probably much simpler than that. I think the much more simple uh, answer, explanation for this, is that if you actually do get a prosecution against Donald Trump, if you're Alvin Bragg and you manage to pull this off somehow, then your political career goes through the roof. That helps you big time within the Democratic Party. And it may just be as simple as there's a couple of key people who stand to benefit from him being prosecuted personally, and that's really all it is. It's just a way, it's just a benefit to them. And that there really is no larger strategy here politically. There's no one pulling the string saying, you got to prosecute Trump because it will lead to this, which will lead to that, which will help us win the next election. It may just be Alvin Bragg sitting there saying, you know, I could prosecute him. And boy, if I could pull that off, uh, maybe I can run for Congress someday, or maybe I'll be, uh, uh, you know, rich and famous off of this. I could write a book about how I took down Trump, you know, or whatever, like taking down the big man or, well, no, Joe Biden's the big man. Take, taking He's down the big guy. The yeah. The big man. guy. Sorry. Take, taking down orange man. Right. Or something. I can see it now. An Alvin Bragg story right like he's got a shot at at becoming no one knows who he is now all of a sudden he could be somebody and that i think is probably all this is the the fallout from it the, the reason the media is not ignoring it is because the media first of all have uh they have a, a 
a mental, you know, the mental disease. They can't stop themselves from talking about Donald Trump. They're sick. Um, but the other reason they talk about it is because their their numbers are are dying. They're they're crashing. CNN, MSNBC, all these big networks are just in free fall, and they've been in free fall since Donald Trump stopped being president. And so I think they would love nothing more than to just find a reason to bring those viewers back to MSNBC and CNN. You guys still hate Donald Trump. Don't you come back. We're still talking about him. And they can't find anybody to do it. But I think they're hoping that this will be the thing that brings them back in. And right. so, I mean, I don't know that there is like a, a big strategy. If there is... I would, if I had to put money on, there is this big overarching strategy and someone calls up Alvin Bragg and says, you got to do this because blah, you know, this will lead to this, which will lead to that. Then I would say, um, it's probably that they want Trump to win, that they actually think this will help him in the primaries and that they want him to win because I cannot believe based on what we know about Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris and the other clowns over there at the White House that um, the Democratic establishment feels good about their chances of winning against anybody other than Donald Trump. I think they do feel good about beating Donald Trump and they want him to be the nominee. So I don't think they're trying to destroy him. I think that they're trying to galvanize support around him if there is a plan. But in reality, I think there probably isn't. And it's just a selfish guy in New York trying to take advantage of the moment and that's probably all this is. Yeah, I'm curious if the people that are listening, if they have any thoughts on this, uh, if it's one theory or another in their mind. To me, it's like, you know, if Donald Trump just came out and like, this is all BS, like, don't worry. Like, this is this is all just a distraction, you know, whatever. Like, I'm going to beat this. It's no problem. Then I feel like the majority of people are like, all right, what, what else is on TV? And then, but, but this is being made in this big monumental thing. And I think there's reason to, you know, uh, Chris and, and Jim, you brought up the, the, the kind of issues that this kind of highlights in the in the justice system. I, I get that. But because this is made to be such a big deal, uh, it's like we almost have to take a side. That That's kind of how it feels. So I could see how this could actually boost uh, Donald Trump in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, Jim, I'll give you final words on this, but I want to move on to our next yeah. topic. Well, I mean, it doesn't actually boost Donald Trump in my mind. I mean, it's this is not going to have any effect on on who I want to defeat the left in our next election. Let's just say that. But uh, it, it, and uh, Chris, you actually alluded to the idea that this sets a very dangerous precedent of, and what you mean is that the ruling, the, the ruling regime will use the legal system to press charges against their political enemies, which is things that happen in say Venezuela or, uh, you know, other developing nations and, you know, what we call banana republics and that sort of thing. Uh, that precedent's already been set. Uh, there are uh, people who gathered at the Capitol shortly before the inauguration in 2001 who are political prisoners sitting in what they call the D.C. Gulag in some of the worst conditions that we have in prisons in this country. And why are they really there? They're there because they are the political opponents of the regime in power. That's it. Uh, so that president's already been set. So I'm actually not surprised they went after Trump. And, uh, you know, just one last thing, you know, people say, well, you shouldn't do this, Dems, because when the Republicans are in power, they'll do the same thing to you guys. No, they won't. They never do. Uh, whenever a Republican wins a presidency, the deep state, the, the permanent bureaucracy, the people who really run this country don't change. They work against whoever was just elected and is not on the left and just continue going along. And in fact, as we learned during the Trump administration, they work against the president and try to get him in even legal trouble even then. So the precedent's already been set. We already kind of already we already kind of live in a banana republic. Uh, and the, 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 the only question is how long this is going to continue and how and how, how many people are going to get away with it. Johnny, can I, can I just take one minute to respond to that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Jim, I totally agree with you, but I think that this is different because the January 6th uh, protesters were not running for office against the sitting president. True. Never, never in history has a would be presidential candidate been arrested on a, on a, you know, no, on a crime that no one even thinks is a crime. And I think I told this to Donnie a couple of days ago, but immediately what this uh, reminded me of the Joseph Stalin quote of show me the man, I'll show you the crime. We do not want to live in that kind of a society. Trust me. We do. Yep. We do already. 
Yep, yep, yep. Interesting stuff. And, you know, I always kind of uh, wince at the idea of like this being a distraction from some other story, because I feel like every single thing is a potentially a distraction from every other possible thing. But I will say I heard someone being like, well, yeah, everyone's paying attention to this and no one's paying attention to any of the stuff going on with the Biden family and everything like that. And I I hear you. I hear you. Or, or or China and Russia, you know, becoming bosom buddies or China going into the Middle East and uh, negotiating with Iran and Saudi Arabia. And China yeah, see, this now, is what I mean. It's trying to not for everything. The, well, <laughs> what I'm just saying, I mean, I love how that's just been completely overlooked by the mainstream media, even though yeah. this is, we are on the verge of a world changing power struggle between the United States. In fairness, States people and don't China. really care about any of that stuff anyway. So well, that doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about something that uh, might have some even longer-lasting potential impacts, and that is something that we have talked about a handful of times on this podcast, and that is the idea of a central bank-backed digital currency or the digital dollar. So like I said, we've talked about this a number of times over the past, I don't know, year or so, maybe even longer. I have no concept of time anymore. And much of this talk has been kind of theoretical and an assortment of what-ifs and worst-case scenarios, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, we've warned about the potential implications of this sort of thing uh, and how it could be potentially used to control society, et cetera, et cetera. Well, talk like that, that we have contributed to, has encouraged policymakers throughout the country to start erecting a defense against a potential digital U.S. dollar. We'll get to that. But I want to structure this conversation in a way that provides a kind of a, a comprehensive context to this topic so that people can fully uh, better understand everything that's at play here. So I want to cover what is the digital dollar, the worst case scenario type of things. Uh, how far along are we into, into the development of this and how the fight has started to stop this before it really starts. So I, I want to start off with this. Uh, what is the digital dollar and get ready, Justin, because I'm going to lean on you for this one. Uh, but th this is the first part of the discussion that I want to have, because I think too many people, when they hear about the idea of the digital dollar, they think, uh, you know, so what? I barely use cash nowadays anyways. I use debit cards. I use credit cards. I use electronic payments all the time. This is essentially the digital money already, isn't it? So, Justin, to that point, how would you respond? Right. So I, I think that the the important thing for people to to keep in mind is that when we're talking about a digital dollar, we don't mean a dollar that you can use digitally. What we mean is uh, a dollar that exists only in a digital context. There is no physical version of it. It is a it is entirely digital. And so there is no way for you to put it in your pocket. There's no way for you to go to the bank and withdraw cash versions of it. Um, you can't walk around with it in that way. It exists only digitally. That's what a digital dollar is. Now, when we're talking about the dangers of a digital dollar, digital currency, a central bank digital currency is usually what we're referring to because, uh, and that's usually how news reports talk about it as well, because that's that's who's going to be in charge of it ultimately is a central bank. Um, what we mean is not just that it's a like the dollar we have right now, it's just it only exists digitally. What we mean is that it'll be programmable. Uh, it will be traceable. It will be trackable. There will be a record of everything you do. And the people who are in charge of managing this digital dollar will know where you're spending your money. They'll know where you are because of that, basically at all times. They'll be able to set rules, in embed rules into the money so that if they decide one day, you know, we're not going to let people buy uh, ammunition anymore because we have a gun violence crisis, uh, they could do that. And so you just can't buy ammunition with your, with your uh, digital dollars anymore, right? Or if they decided that, you know, there's uh, certain people have are, are spreading misinformation, you know, and they're using their ad dollars uh, to do it. Um, then we can just program the money so that you can't spend money on advertising of certain kinds of things. Like you could do anything you want because it's programmable. And that's, that's really the point, right? Right now, they really, they, they, their banks know where you're spending your money if you're spending through your bank account. But if you're spending with cash, nobody knows exactly how you're spending your money. 
And so you always, because you always have that option, there's limits to what people can do. And because your money is with private banks and not with, say, the Federal Reserve or with some uh, the U.S. Treasury or something like that, which is how a central bank digital currency would work, that's where it would be hosted, uh, the government doesn't automatically know where you're spending your money. If they want access to your bank account records, the bank has to give it to them. Sometimes there has to be warrants and things like that in order to make that happen. So the danger of a digital dollar is from a from a privacy and civil liberties perspective, it's that you would have no privacy. You would have no way of escaping that problem. Uh, everything you do, everywhere you go would be traced and tracked and the money could be controlled so that you can't use it in a way that the people in charge decide they don't like, even if it would otherwise be a lawful activity. They, 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 can, they can turn it off in that way. And then from a economic standpoint, what's really bad about this is obviously if you can just create money by pushing a button, then it becomes really easy to just push that button whenever the government wants to create money. Right now, they're already creating tons and tons and tons of money. We know that. But it, as crazy as it sounds, it would be even easier for them to do that with a digital currency. And then you could also tie rules to it. So let's say they wanted to uh, increase spending but they just can't get people to spend money. They lower interest rates, but they just can't get people to go out and get loans and spend money, but they need to boost the economy. Okay, well then they could set a rule to the digital dollar that says, if you don't spend a certain percentage of the amount of digital dollars you have, they're gonna start disappearing. Like they could do that if they wanted. And because, all, because it's programmable and because it would be controlled and hosted by these authorities, there's really no end to the amount of crazy schemes that you could dream up. The point is we don't want to give them the power to do any of these things. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of both liberals and conservatives that don't like the idea of the government knowing every single thing that they spend money on on a daily basis and wanting the government to have rules that control all of that. So... That's what a digital currency is when we're talking about a digital dollar. So, so Jim, uh, I, I know you just heard the crazy Justin Haskins ranting about conspiracy theories again, but don't don't listen to him. I'm going to give you the official story about right. uh, the digital dollar. All right, so don't listen to him. Let me let me quell your fears real quick, Jim. So, um, you know, I think another thing that people think of when they hear of digital dollars is that they think it's like cryptocurrency, and this is also not the case. You know, cryptocurrency is a is a terrible thing for terrible people that want to hide their transactions and commit crimes essentially by using that money. That's not the case, all right? This is this is actually very much uh, a digital dollar is actually kind of the opposite of cryptocurrencies in many respects. Cryptocurrencies are very specifically designed to be decentralized. You know what else is decentralized, Jim? Bad stuff. You know what's centralized? good stuff oh, and that's what cbdc's it. are they're very centralized the central bank that backs the digital currency would have all sorts of controls over the currency so you know these are some other things that a cbdc could help facilitate all of the listen to all of these different benefits these come from these people that are advocating for this that's me that's me uh, a more efficient and secure digital payments doesn't that sound great uh, increased financial inclusion because, you know, there's a lot of people that can't get bank accounts. So this would allow everyone to be included in the financial system. Improved monetary policy transmission, right? Because, you know, different airdrops of money or, or, you know, taking money out of people's accounts becomes a lot easier. That's a good thing. Remember, that's a good thing. Help prevent criminal activity. I mean, Jim, do you want more criminal activity? So you should be in favor of this. And to quote a gentleman from the Bank of International Settlements, this is August Karstens, he says, we don't know who's using a $100 bill today, and we don't know who's using a $1,000 peso bill uh, today. The key difference with a CBDC is that the central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that expression of central bank liability, and also we will have the technology to enforce that. Don't you feel more comfortable about this than, you know, all the crazy stuff Justin was saying, Jim? What do you think? <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> I don't like any of that at all. 
uh, look, you know, so yeah, I, I'm a little bit new to this. I've been doing some reading, but you guys, I know Donnie and, and Justin have been talking about this subject a lot, but it sounds like ESG, except kind of like a, in the retail space. In other words, it's closer to the people than ESG, you know, so, so mandating that companies uh, passing regulations or rules that you can't or, you know, they're trying to do it through the private sector with ESG saying, OK, you can't invest in fossil fuel companies. You can't invest in gun companies. You can't invest in all these things. And now, you know, so that's not enough power for these these power mad lefties. You know, now we have to determine how you as an individual can spend and invest your money as well. But it's, but even down to the spending level. And so it's always about social control and it's always about less freedom. So it, I've, I've heard it described that if a if a global digital currency ever comes to pass. And I, I really do think it's inevitable. I mean, maybe not this year, certainly not this year, maybe not in five years, but in 20, 30 years, um, I would think that's an easy estimate to say that a global digital currency uh, controlled by some global bank uh, or, or a series of banks is an inevitability. And it's always about controlling the populace. Like the, the, these power mad lefties who run our banks, who run all of our governments, who you know implement these so-called treaties on climate change and other things, just cannot abide people having freedom to spend money as they wish, to live where they wish, to live how they wish, to invest in companies they think are good uh, and will make them a profit. All of these things have to come to an end. The, the ultimate aim of the people that are pushing these things is complete domination over your life. And if you were given any bit of freedom, you are a problem. And if you insist upon your freedom, you're an even bigger problem. And perhaps we need more jails for those sorts of people. Yeah, Justin, you already kind of mentioned the smart contract thing, but I do want to elaborate on that a little bit as we do kind of move into the worst case scenarios when it comes to a digital dollar plan like this. Well, Donnie, Donnie, can I make one quick comment? Absolutely. Okay, so uh, I would be in favor of a digital dollar if it would make it easier to track Hunter Biden's uh, <laughs> money from China to the United States. However, I have a sneaking suspicion that somehow, some way, we wouldn't have access to that kind of, uh, you know, information. So, yeah. yeah Therefore, I've totally changed my mind, and now I'm totally anti-digital dollar. I think he's using the digital one, so I'm not, I'm not really sure. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, so silly me. So the uh, so the the idea of smart contracts originated in the cryptocurrency field, and it does allow for some very interesting use cases for cryptocurrency or you know currency in general. The money itself, as Justin said, can be programmed to you know let's say transfer into another person's account as soon as a different condition is met, and this allows for greater efficiency. It can cut out middlemen in a lot of cases. It cut out can cut out the need for banks in certain cases. So it's a really interesting development. Development in the cryptocurrency field, you know, the type of currency that's decentralized and not controlled by any specific person. But again, when it's controlled by a central bank or government, this sort of power should concern you. I'll, I'll drop all the sarcasm for this part of the this part of the show, but it should really concern you. And uh, you know, I, I, we've talked about this some of these things in the past. You know, Justin already went over a couple of examples. But let's say, for example, you know, uh, um. Uh, welfare payments or different stimulus checks or maybe a future PPP loan, you know, next time there's a pandemic that rolls around. That money could have digital strings attached to it to dictate how and when that money is spent. That's what this this allows this to do. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure that you can find some good examples of this. And, you know, food stamp money is programmed to only be spent on food. Great. I, I think that's probably a good thing. But, you know, just let your mind wander and, and imagine some of the things that the government could restrict your money uh, from doing. You know, perhaps the next stimulus money that you get uh, can only be spent on things the government says are essential, you know, during the next pandemic. Or your, you know, your next PPP loan can only be spent in certain ways or on firms that have a high ESG score. Or maybe policymakers decide that any money that comes from the government directly or indirectly should have some digital strings attached to it that prevents you from buying anything that has one of those firearm tags attached to it that we've talked about in previous episodes. And then there's a article that somebody shared with me that was from Time Magazine. Uh, I don't think I have this in the show notes, Andy, but uh, from Time Magazine, and it's titled How You Can Calculate Your Groceries, uh, Grocery List Carbon Footprint. So in this article, the author talks about this tool that was released by a Swedish climate intelligence company called 
carbon cloud that calculates the greenhouse gas emissions of a large number of items that you buy at the grocery store. The stated intent of this technology is to provide insight for your consumers to see what their carbon footprint is when they're shopping for groceries. Apparently, you're, supp you're supposed to shriek in fear when you pick up a box of Pop-Tarts and see that it contributes four kilograms of CO2 in the atmosphere. And instead, you know, pick up a carrot that only gives 0 0.02 kilograms of CO2. And my thought immediately went to this whole digital dollar thing. Uh, and it's very possible that this sort of tool can be worked into a digital currency to facilitate a policy that would limit the amount of kilograms of CO2 that you're allowed to purchase when shopping. In the same way that like a, a firearm purchase could have that tag attributed to it, so could every product. And it could have attached to it a carbon price tag. And this metadata could be cataloged against your account in a way to determine whether or not you've reached your spending ceiling when it comes to your carbon footprint. I mean, could you imagine, you know, in a day where we didn't have this technology and everyone's just spending dollars, you get a paycheck and you just have your bank account. Could you imagine how many IRS or like EPA auditors it would take to track down this sort of thing in the past? It would be absolutely impossible to do. But now with current technology, this is very possible and very possible with very little human interaction. It could all be AI and algorithm. All of that stuff could be taken care of. So that type of like granular policy, like like Jim was saying, on like an individual basis of how you act as a consumer can be controlled with this sort of technology. Justin, you want to add on anything with that? Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, there really is no there really is no end to the way that you could use a central bank digital currency. I mean, it really is in a lot of ways, just the end of freedom. I mean, I, th I think if you're just going to do shorthand, there really is no way that you could possibly have a free society with a central bank digital currency uh, unless there were rules embedded in the central bank digital currency that made it uh, you know, effectively like a like a Bitcoin or something like that, where where you know it's decentralized and it's all this other stuff. But but they're never going to do that. We already know that. The other thing is that you know, uh, Donnie alluded to, to to this earlier, but there has been lots and lots and lots of information put out by the Biden administration. People don't really know this, but lots of information put out by the Biden administration uh, suggesting what sorts of things they're going to include in it. Um, Donnie mentioned earlier uh, that uh, there's the, the talk about uh, financial inclusion and equity and stuff like that. That's all in Biden administration reports, executive orders, uh, comments to the press, etc. They've said over and over and over again, a central bank digital currency should be designed to promote financial inclusion, to promote equity, to battle climate change, to limit pollution, to attack organized crime, etc. Well, how can any of that happen? Unless it's programmable and they can spy on it, it, it on every transaction and they can set rules to make that happen. I mean, it has to be exactly the way that we're describing it in order for any of this to make any sense at all. All these promises they're making. They also included numerous, numerous stakeholders involved in the process, including organized labor, activist groups, environmental groups, etc. This is what they've said. The Biden administration has said we're doing this. They put executive order in place in March of last year calling for a government-wide study of central bank digital currencies. They released those reports in September of uh, 2022 saying, we're gonna keep studying it further, but uh, here's the policy objectives we have for a CBDC. And then they, after doing that, uh, directed all these different heads of various agencies, including the Treasury Department and others, to work together with the Federal Reserve to help develop a central bank digital currency. Th I mean, this thing, there couldn't be more evidence that this is actually <laughs> yeah. happening and that it is going to be programmable and that you are going to lose your freedom and privacy as a result of it. They couldn't be clearer about what they want to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Jim, you already mentioned this, but uh, yeah, Justin and I have been kind of wrapped up in this for the last several months. So, you know, apologies for all those people waiting for the next Jim rant or, you know, you know, Chris, Chris segment or something like that. But if you guys want to jump in at any time, jump in, but I do want to keep this. Okay. Well, real quick. I do, I do have a, a comment I need to make. So uh, as of right now, I'm with bank of America and contacting a bank of America, a customer service representative, 
without going into a branch is literally impossible. Could you imagine how difficult it would be if there was any sort of error in your digital, you know, wallet account? Who would you contact? The digital wallet, you know, no, you service have, like you have to call. Break. call you have to call. Uh, Three hundred thirty Americans are all going to be calling the same number. You know, like constantly. Hi, why is my account? You know, uh, thousand, you have to call you Jerome know, Powell. You have to call him. Uh, up. Maybe maybe <laughs> Janet Yellen. Maybe her personal <laughs> cell phone number will be given to all of us. I mean, yeah, I don't but, know, but it's just one other. Thing. Those are the kind of things that that they just don't even like consider, which as anyone knows, is going to cause huge problems. Donnie, just, I, I don't, I don't want to keep going on this, but uh, when they were rolling out uh, Obamacare, do you remember how, how horrible the website was, how it wasn't even working? They had years to do that. Can you imagine how horrible the platform or website would be for this monstrosity? Uh, it's just like, I mean, please, the, the, the government can't build a website for you to sign up for a healthcare plan. I don't want them building a platform, website, whatever you want to call it, with all the financial transactions and all the you know account histories of everyone in the entire country, like give me a this is insane. Go or ahead, as Jim would like, it's inane. <laughs> That's right. So uh, no, just what I mean, I put this in the private chat. I just wanted to be clear on it. I'll share it with everybody listening right here too. It's like this sounds like that uh, social credit system from China that you guys have been talking about, and how you know ESG was kind of a way to it is kind of an imposition of a social credit system on our um, on our big on your mutual fund, say, but this is a way. And of course, China can impose a social credit system because they're uh, culturally and politically, they're a totalitarian society and their people will just, they have no choice. They have to put up with it. Uh, and so it's not necessarily tied to their money, but they have to participate in a social credit system in order to operate in their society. This is a way to in impose a uh, social credit system on the free West and especially the United States through the back door mm -hmm. and through controlling the only way we can spend money which is how you live and that's and that's what this is really about and like i guess you know i said it in the beginning that this is about controlling the way you live because you don't live everybody listening to this podcast and most people that in the united states are not living in the way that our global uh, elites want us to live uh they so admire china look how look how much control they have over their people well yeah if you're a totalitarian oppressive society and you put people in jail for speaking up against them yeah it's pretty easy to control the people uh it's a little hard a little harder to do in the west and this is the way it's done through yeah, this, through this digital currency yeah this seriously makes the china social credit score thing seem like child's play like this is that was the old way of doing it when i mean old way i mean like 3 years ago yeah. this is the new way and just, uh, you know, in case people think that this is still like theoretical, like there are, I think I mentioned the last episode when we very briefly touched on this, that there's 100 countries working on a CBDC program. Well, according to the Atlantic Council, who has a website that's dedicated to tracking uh, the central bank digital currency programs, there is a 114 countries that are pursuing this as of December of last year. And this includes countries that have launched programs, including like the Bahamas or something. Countries that have started a pilot program, including China, South Africa, South Korea, the United Arab Emirates, and Ukraine, which is kind of interesting. Uh, countries that are developing it, including Australia, Brazil, Canada, India, Japan, and countries that are in the research phase, which includes the UK, Mexico, and the United States. And we've also covered on this show, uh, I think about a year ago now, uh, Biden signing an executive order that would require a number of government agencies to provide insight from their perspective of how a CBDC would work. So a lot of this is currently in motion. But Justin, there was a very interesting development uh, just recently uh, on the state level. So Justin calls me up one day. This is probably, I don't know, three weeks ago, a month ago, telling, telling me about the UCC, which is the Uniform Commercial Code. This is a piece of legislation that is passed in uh, and updated separately in all 50 states in an effort to ensure that the rules that are in place to regulate various commercial activities remain consistent in all states. And apparently this UCC thing is updated from time to time, and it's usually just a rubber stamp affair for legislative officials. Uh, you know, there's really no debate or friction at all. It's just like, oh, yeah, update to this thing that no one cares about. Great. Stamp it. It's now law. Well, apparently the most recent update to this UCC contains language that appears to be setting the stage for a digital currency. 
Uh, this mostly went unnoticed because, like I said, the UCC update is not something that's usually controversial. But unfortunately, for the advocates of the digital dollar, Justin found out about this. So, Justin, am I uh, mostly right in my explanation of this UCC thing? Or feel free to fill in the gaps. Yeah, the so the Uniform Commercial Code um, gets updated every several years or so. It takes them years to put it together. It's put together by lawyers who work at a few nonprofit organizations that are dedicated mainly just to this. And there's a lot of good stuff in the UCC. It's important that we have a UCC. And it's a really good federalism thing because it's not a federal law. It's a state law. And all the states pass it. And so there's a lot of good stuff related to this. But in the most recent version of the UCC, they added stuff in that redefine the definition of money so that specifically money was whatever the government says money is unless the government says that it's a cryptocurrency in which case it's not money even though the government says it's money so if the united states government came out tomorrow and said bitcoin is the official currency of the united states according to this commercial code the updated version of it it wouldn't be money even though the government says that it's money and otherwise, it would be considered money, but in this case, it wouldn't. And that caused a lot of people to say, it turns out that that's actually not really the most important part of the story, but that caused a lot of people that raised a lot of red flags saying, why would they, why would they even do that? And when we started digging into it more, what we found was that there's all sorts of things that in the, both the existing code and the, amend, the amendments that are being proposed that would, in effect, make it easy for a central bank digital currency, which has not been created yet, officially, right, to be utilized in a bunch of different kinds of commercial transactions. So stuff related to loans and, uh, you know, having when you need to have collateral and all sorts of technical stuff that you don't really need to know. But the point is that the code... It, in its current form and in the amended form is trying to make it possible for central bank digital currencies to be used, even though they don't exist. Now, that's especially strange given the fact that this is, remember, this is state law, okay? So you have all these states all across the country. There's 20 some odd states right now that are looking at this UCC update. All the states have the existing UCC already in place that have some of these problematic provisions in it. A lot of states, most states are red and they don't want a central bank digital currency, yet their code is written to account for a central bank digital currency that they don't want to happen and that doesn't exist. So the question is, why are you putting things in your code that help make a central bank digital currency run smoothly in the economy when you don't want it in the economy and it doesn't exist in the economy? It's right. insane. And so once we started... Once uh, we, and there's a bunch of other groups, uh, Club for Growth is another one, and State Freedom Caucus is another group that's been working on this. Once we started alerting lawmakers to what was going on, there was this huge internal battle in a number of states over this question of, should we just update the UCC as it is currently? Should we revise it? Should we just kill the amendments? What should we do? That's been the big fight that's been going on in all these states across the country, and in uh, uh, South Dakota, Governor Kristi Noem vetoed the legislation that had been passed there overwhelmingly by Republicans for this exact reason, because of many of these concerns. And Ron DeSantis just recently came out earlier this week, I believe, and said, don't even try to send that to my desk. I'm going to veto. There's no way I'm going to accept a UCC code that does anything to promote central bank digital currencies. In fact, we should put laws in place that explicitly say that Florida doesn't allow for central bank digital currency. So he goes even a step further. And now you've got lawmakers in Texas that want to do the, do the same thing. You've got lawmakers in Tennessee that want to rewrite the existing code so that that's better than, than, you know, so that, so that we're not just denying the amendments that are coming through the door, but we're actually fixing the problems with the existing code that allow for central bank digital currencies. And so there's all these fights surrounding that about whether this is bad for versus cryptocurrencies or good for cryptocurrencies. That's actually not the focus. The focus is that the code that, that states should never put things into law that are going to help make a central bank digital currency happen. Right. And that's exactly what 
the big push against this is right yeah and see and this this is the thing and i said this when it comes to the the whole great reset and the esg where they had all these foundations that were built up when nobody was paying attention and then it was all of a sudden everyone started talking about esg and everyone started realizing oh my gosh this is terrible and then it became front and center for the mind uh, on the minds of conservative types that wanted to push back against this. And this is the same exact thing. This UCC thing. I, I saw a tweet from, I think, uh, Texas Governor Abbott. This is from like, I don't know, six months ago. Uh, it was a tweet being like, I signed this UCC thing into law. Like, that's it's going to be great or something like that. And I'm sure that he did that out of just like this idea. Like I said, that it was just, you know, a rubber stamp. You know, nobody even cares what this is. Like, let's move along. But now that this is becoming a thing that people are aware of, this this potential of a digital dollar that has really shined the spotlight on these these foundations that are trying to be built up underneath the radar. And they're exposing it to a point where these people who have big political sway are doing something about it. So yeah, Justin, you already mentioned that the uh, South Dakota governor, Christy Nome vetoed it. She was on Tucker Carlson talking about exactly why she vetoed it. And she actually did a really good job of explaining it. And I say actually, because uh, uh, it's a, it's kind of a difficult topic area to explain in a concise way when you're on a three minute clip on Tucker Carlson, but she did a really good job of explaining that. And then, uh, yeah, Ron DeSantis coming out and, and and proposing some bill that would explicitly prohibit CBDCs in the state. And, and that's like a guy who could be running for president soon where this is front and center on his mind. No, we have to take a stand against this. And then I just saw Ted Cruz introduces legislation to prohibit a Fed from the Fed from establishing a central bank digital currency. So the fact that the, like these people are talking about this and that this isn't something that's flying underneath the radar anymore is an incredible sign. Incredible sign. Jim, Chris, do you want to respond to anything that we've said so far about this? No, I'm just learning. I'd like to hear <laughs> Chris there in the darkness in the dark lower right panel. Yeah. So, Donnie, I, I, I recently wrote about uh, Ted Cruz, you know, um, proposing that bill. He actually proposed the same bill uh, last year, too. But unfortunately, the odds of that going anywhere are obviously, you know, zero because Biden would veto it. So I think at the federal level, we can hope. That in 2024, if, you know, DeSantis or Trump or someone likes that, you know, does win, that they would, you know, actually consider signing such a bill. Because if they could outlaw it at the federal level, I think that would really put a crimp in this. But in the meantime, I, I agree with Justin. Um, I think the UCC code needs to be thoroughly examined and that uh, governors should not sign off on anything that would further enable the uh, implementation of a digital currency. Um, but I also think that the United States, uh, the, the the people, we the people need to make our voices heard about this. Right. And I think that, you know, like, like, like we've outlined so many reasons why you should oppose this. I mean, th that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, it, this this could go so far down the rabbit hole and this could this could lead to all sorts. I mean, you like you guys said, this could lead to a uh, ES, to a uh, social credit score system just like in China. And Donnie, one of the things that I've been watching uh, the past couple of years is how these payment processors, especially like the major credit card companies, are already in the business of doing this with, you know, uh, under, you know, under the guise of the banks. Right. So I think that this would just actually further alleviate that, you know, that middleman, which to some degree we can hope, you know, uh, bows the pressure from people because if the, if the payment processors or if, you know, like your uh, local, you know, and mid-sized regional banks are no longer part of the picture, well, then that means that it's going to be total consolidation of the entire banking sector. And I think that that's what we are seeing playing out before our very eyes. And I think that, uh, you know, I'll take this back to 2008, 2009, when, you know, we had too big to fail and we had a bunch of big banks gobbling up a bunch of bigger, uh, smaller banks. I think we're about to see that happen again. And I think that, you know, when when the dust settles, we could be left with Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo and Citi. And, you know, those are the big four. And I think that that would also make it much easier for the government to roll out this CBDC because they could do it under the guise of, well, we're partnering with the banks to do this. Yeah. And then, you know, they could, uh, whenever they want, take the banks out of the uh, equation there and then we'd be stuck with this digital currency. So I think that the, the environment is very ripe for something like this to happen. And I think that it is incumbent upon the people to push back against this at the state, local, federal, whatever level possible. 
just just don't allow this to happen. Do whatever you need to do. One hundred percent. I mean, you know, when ESG is was was. I mean, we started talking about ESG maybe before anybody uh, here on this podcast. The Heartland Institute's been pushing back at it in every way we can, and we specialize in communicating to state legislators. And you know, ESG is a global phenomenon, right? Yet state after state after state took a stand and said, no, we're not going to participate in this whole ESG garbage. And, you know, one state then follows another, then follows another. And now we see that some of these big uh, um, investment houses are, are kind of backing up from ESG, or at least saying they're backing up from it. And I think the same thing can happen as global as a uh, central bank digital currency could be if like starting right there with Florida, you know, if you start taking some stands, you slow the momentum for it. These things right. are not necessarily inevitable. And you may think you are powerless, but you are not. And states are also not powerless in, in this regard. And so if you don't take a stand, we will get run over. So right. you have to stand up. Yeah. The only reason that, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz are talking about this stuff is because, you know, people that are like the people that are talking on this podcast or listening to us talk on this podcast are talking about it. That's the reason that they're paying attention. Mm -hmm. uh, Justin, we are about to hit the one hour mark here, but uh, just very briefly, can you just kind of outline uh, kind of the next steps in this uh, in two realms? One, kind of the fight against it and two, like the the path that it could take to actually becoming a reality. Yeah. So the, the main thing that we need to do right now uh, from a, uh, well, at a federal level, what we need is we need something along the lines of what Ted Cruz is proposing, but that is not going to happen while Joe Biden is president and it's not going to happen. Pro it might happen with the current constitution of the Senate, uh, but it won't, definitely won't happen while Joe Biden is president. So that's something that's, that's, we're just building momentum at the federal level for that. At some point in the future, I think we're going to have to deal with that at the federal level. We need to continue putting public pressure to make this a national issue mm -hmm. so that presidential candidates take this on and make this a big thing. Because that's ultimately how this is going to get done, is if a presidential candidate... Uh, says this is this is a top priority for me and I'm going to I'm going to run on this this is part of the platform and then of course they have to win but that would be a big a big part of all of that at the state level though what lawmakers can do right now is they can is they can go through their entire code not just the UCC but any other part of their code where there is an allowance for a central bank digital currency and it isn't always clear that that's the case but if there are not uh, uh, guardrails that keep the central bank digital currency stuff out of their state codes, then they, as states, have every right to do that, to change their code so that a, tr a programmable, trackable, uh, uh, malleable CBDC cannot be used um, in a bunch of different kinds of commercial transactions and other things that are relevant to states specifically. Uh, that will go a long way toward throwing a, a stick into the spokes of this whole thing um, and making it much more difficult for a CBDC to be rolled out in the future. You're not going to be able to totally stop it at the state level, but you can protest against it. You can make it harder for it to happen. You can say, nope, not in this state. We're not going to tolerate it to the best of our ability. Um, and that's what lawmakers are starting to do on the UCC front, but they need to, they need to go through the UCC and purge it of all kinds of other problematic aspects related to this and other things as well as a whole bunch of other state laws they've have frankly a lot of state lawmakers have kind of fallen asleep at the wheel when it comes to some of these more technical uh, uh commercial transaction laws and things like that financial laws because it's really hard to understand them and i totally sympathize with it but now we're seeing how not paying attention to those aspects of the code that are not exactly sexy can lead to really big problems right. with other things that are important issues like a CBDC. So you have to take all of this stuff seriously. And, and the good news is I've heard from many lawmakers all across the country in a whole bunch of different states, including some liberal states, where they, they are starting to take that seriously and they really want to do something about this now. So that's just absolutely fantastic. We're going to win on this issue, I think, in the short term and hopefully in the long term too. A lot of that will come down to the president. Uh, but I, I think that if we can we can make a big push for this at the state level, we got a good shot uh, in the next, say, two to three years of really making a huge impact on this. All hey, right. Donnie, Donnie, very important question. I don't want to end the, the podcast with the question, but would I still be able to go to Buffalo Wild Wings and buy bonus wings <laughs> with my digital dollar? It all depends on how that lawsuit. Because that is, that is the, where I, I draw the line. If it it I all depends on how that lawsuit. Bonus, 
pans out. Yeah, it's, it's, very, little... it's is Buffalo Wild Wings too big to fail? <laughs> It's thing. very it's very clear, Chris, from Biden's executive order from March that the answer is no. You won't oh, be able to. Unbelievable. Sorry. Unbelievable. Well, it's a climate All right, change folks, issue. That oh, music God. means that we are we are out of time. So I want to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. Those audio only listeners. Oh my gosh, I forgot to do that whole bit at the beginning. That's right. Audio only listeners that are catching the show on a Friday. You can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where you can watch us live on Rumble and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, you could do a bunch of things to help us out. One, for those audio-only listeners, leave a review for us on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. For those people that are watching us on YouTube and Rumble, hit that like button, hit that share button, subscribe if you haven't already, or just leave a comment under the video. All of these things won't cost you a penny, only it costs you a second, but helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. If you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at InTheTankPod, or you can send us your comments and suggestions or questions to the show by emailing us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com jim lakely where can the fine people find you at jay lakely on twitter at heartland inst on twitter and always visit heartland.org justin haskins same question at justin c haskins on facebook twitter parlor getter and uh everywhere else that people are found white pages Fantastic. i think i'm in there too and, uh, <laughs> chris uh what do you have to pitch today well, I hope everybody goes to stoppingsocialism.com because we got some awesome new articles up there and they're definitely worth reading. All right. Fantastic. Thank you all for joining us. We will talk to you next week.